0: welcome back to the prairie pod season 2 episode 8 this is our final episode I can't even believe it Jess can you believe it no of course not it's flown by as usual I know I'm sad it's flown by like a wildfire like a really fast (laughs) prairie wildfire you just light it and then all of a sudden whoosh! it's done reason why I'm being such a dork and talking about fire is because that is what we're talking about today. Our episode title is The Hills Are Ablaze. I was going to sing it, but then I decided not to. You're welcome, Jessica. You're welcome. You yeah. <laughs> Later. Later I will. So we are joined by two fabulous guests today to help us round out the season, and there's no better people we could think to round out the season with than these two gentlemen. Joe, how I you introduce yourself?
1: I'm Joe Blastic with the Nature Conservancy. I manage our Prairie Coteau program across eastern South Dakota and southwest Minnesota. And I'm also the fire manager for South Dakota, um, making sure all of our staff are following the rules and staying compliant with our guidelines and things.
0: I like it, Chris.
1: Yeah, good morning. My name is Chris Smith. Uh, I wear many different hats.
2: Uh, I work for the Department of Transportation where I serve as a Protected Species Program Coordinator. But a lot of my experience with uh, invertebrates and fire actually started when I worked for Department of Natural Resources in the non game wildlife program. And I've continued to stay involved with DNR uh, as a, a private uh, contractor doing some fire effect works uh, with, with them.
0: Awesome. See, this is these are the people to talk to when you want to talk about setting stuff on fire. So. <laughs> I didn't say who I was. I'm Megan Benage. I'm a regional ecologist with the Department of Natural Resources. Jess, you didn't say who you were either. I didn't. It's episode eight. I kind of figured people had it
3: figured out by now. Jessica Peterson, invertebrate ecologist for the Minnesota DNR, Minnesota Biological Survey.
0: Good job. It's always good to stay in practice, know who you are. So yes, today's podcast, we're gonna talk about prescribed fire. We call it prescribed because even though anybody who does fire management as part of their job absolutely loves the thrill of fire. These are controlled burns. That's a key word, controlled. So they're for the purpose of disturbance-based management and we're, they're done with the utmost safety in mind and we're usually trying to do it to improve the habitat because prairies need disturbance in order to persist. I wish I had another P word in there because then I could get alliteration. Prairies need perpetual disturbance to persist. I'm gonna keep going. Stop laughing, Joe. (laughs) Oh, let's just jump right in. But wait, but wait, we can't jump right in without a caveat. So I just wanna make sure everybody understands. We are talking about prescribed burning in tall grass prairies. And so I just wanna make sure because we're in Minnesota and this may not be clear to everybody. We are not talking about mid or short grass prairies that you'll find as we move across the United States west. Go west, young man! So we're talking about tall grass prairies, and these tend to get a little bit more rainfall. So our climate people tell me we get about roughly 30 inches of rainfall per year. And Minnesota ranges somewhere between 18 inches in northwest and about 32 inches in northwest. All the way to southeast Minnesota towards the boot. So just keep that in mind that rainfall matters when you're talking about setting stuff on fire. So Joe tell us a little bit about when prairies burned
1: originally. I think you know historically we talk about them burning in the spring, some in the summertime, um, and then in the fall when you had natural you know natural things like lightning strikes and those sorts of um, natural occurrences. But over time you know, our systems have been altered and that's become a lot more challenging to to mimic and to do. So, um, you know, right now then the prescribed fire world focus a lot more on spring burning and fall burning with not as much summer burning, um, not because the ecology doesn't need it. It's just because things have changed.
0: Uh, It's usually staffing, right? Like that's when we have crews.
1: Yeah, staffing and, you know, back in the day, we didn't have all the noxious, you know, invasive weed issues. Um, So we've got to take that into consideration too when we're talking about burning and removing all the vegetation. um, We sometimes can open ourselves up to some invasion from the plants we don't want.
0: And when we're burning and you say removing the vegetation, we're just taking off, burning just ignites what's above ground. We still have so much below ground.
1: Oh absolutely we're talking about the vertical structure, the duff, the thatch, um, allowing that sunlight to hit the soil to stimulate our, our native plants to come back.
3: Well, Joe, tell us a little bit more about about how prairies survive fire. What is it that part of their biology that makes it so that you can burn off the top layer of them?
1: Well, it, it comes down to their extensive root structure. You know, a lot of folks don't realize that our non-native grasses, um, Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome really don't have that much of a root structure they might go down a foot or so. Whereas our native plants, our native forbs, Their roots will go down 12 15 plus feet um, which is really impressive so when you remove that top they still have all that stored energy below the ground to revegetate and come back up
0: there's a really awesome um i'm trying to think of the name of it the land institute in kansas did this really cool partnership with National Geographic where they took photos of prairie roots and they had to do them in sequence and Dr. Jerry Glover is standing with, I think, either a picture of intermediate wheatgrass or switchgrass. I can't remember which one. And it's like 21 feet of roots that they show and it's just this huge tangled mass. I mean, they prairie roots, Rapunzel ain't got nothing on them. Let's just say it that way because they're just huge and so i encourage you to look that up it's jim richardson is the photographer and he's a fabulous photographer and he really captures if when we're talking about roots he really captures it that i don't know if you guys have seen have you guys seen that Yep. i know it's iconic if you're gonna do prairie management you have to take a look at that because that just tells you how much we're dealing with below ground there's a whole community under there okay i segued myself but i just got really excited okay joe keep going Tell us a little bit, just quick and dirty. What are the benefits of burning? Why would we want to burn? Especially since now, like you mentioned earlier, we're not usually burning in midsummer, which would have been historically when the prairies would have caught fire because of lightning strikes, because that's when we have most of our peak storms. or used to have.
1: So now I think most of the, you know, the prescribed burners are burning the control our invasive grasses, our smooth brome and Kentucky bluegrass, and really the best time the get after them is in the early growing season so that's why things have kind of shifted to the summer and the or spring in the fall um, and the benefits of the spring burning is is once you remove that vegetation uh, first thing in the spring that allows that sunlight to come down heat up the soil and you get this wonderful flush of your native grasses and your forbs and because you just burned and removed most of that vegetation um, there's quite a bit of research out there that shows when those forbs and grasses set seed in the fall you get a lot better seed to soil contact so it's kind of the whole system renewing itself to keep things going Um, and that that's really what we're we're going for to rejuvenate the prairie and you know keep things open I always kinda use the analogy if think if you're a little teeny tiny bird with two inch legs if you go through grasslands that are really thick with you know duff and thatch on the ground what a miserable experience that would be to walk around But when you go through a really nice prairie that's been burned or grassland and you've got all this open space, I mean, that's like the Indy 500 of birds. You know, you can get around really well and chase insects and be a lot more successful.
0: I used to do this activity with high school kids when I was teaching them about how prairies need open structure and different heights where I would make them crouch down as as small as they could to imitate being a baby pheasant. (laughs) And then I'd have them run at each other in the prairie to see how fast they could do it. And then they'd run at each other in the lawn grass. Yeah, we make kids do weird (coughs) things sometimes. But it's really effective as a teaching tool because it helped them see, like, oh, okay, I have to get down to a different level. Like when we're teaching the native plant community trainings, we tell people, okay, first get at your bison level. Then you got to move down to your prairie chicken level, then you got to move down to your skipper level, or as Jess would say, the regal fritillary level, so that you can see all the different structures that you need depending on the size you are as an animal in the prairie.
1: And that's super critical because all the, you know, all the different critters need to have different needs. Um, So if you have one monoculture of one thing, you're excluding that habitat to other species that need the other, you know, structures.
0: I would 100% agree with you. I think structure is the hardest thing to recreate when we do restorations. I think it's the absolute number one hardest thing.
1: It, it totally is because a lot of our plantings, no matter how hard we try, tend to go towards a warm season plantings. It's it's just easier to get the warm seasons going. Um, and the follow-up management tends to lean towards warm season grasses So it's or warm season plants. So it's really hard to get the cool season components and it's really hard to keep you know, the natural heterogeneity that the grasslands used to have.
3: Um, I agree with you. Take those roots To grow down, like how many
0: years do we know this, the answer to this question? How long it would take them? It would totally depend on. You're going to love this answer, Jess. This is my science answer. It would totally depend on the amount of moisture they're getting, yeah, the number of cool. nutrients in the system, right? Are they getting predictable rainfall, age of the plant? Sure. When they did, I think when they did that National Geographic study, and again, they were growing them in pots, they weren't right. growing them out on the prairie. And I don't know how often they were fertilizing them, but they were able to do that in one season. And have oh. that depth. But I think they were really encouraging the growth. So I think it would only take a couple years. I mean, think about a reconstruction that we go out to, even Swessinger, last year. If you start digging up some of the older, like the two-year-old plantings, it's already really hard. I mean, if you want to give somebody a horrible task, go tell them to dig up a big blue stem plant
1: that's just mean it is mean
0: like if you really dislike somebody be like you know what i want you to do i want you to go dig up this plant and get all the roots (laughs) on
1: a restoration not a native prairie
0: yeah of course we don't want to be digging up in a (laughs) round of break good (laughs) job good flag joe there you go but i don't know jess i don't know the answer but i would think only a couple years i mean they're really only limited in this part of minnesota by the hard pan once they hit till i mean they're not magic They are magic, but they're not invincible. They can't break through till. So.
3: Yeah, I just wonder if some of that structural heterogeneity might come with time, with a, a diverse planting, once it achieves some sort of root competition or, you know, limiting root space. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here.
0: I like when you think out loud. It always We're helps. we going me. down a rabbit hole, though.
1: Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that, but I think of when you talk about in a grazing system, if you overgraze, how much root volume you lose in a very short amount of time. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, and rest through the course of a a season gives you a whole lot of recovery below the ground too. So Mm -hmm. how how long it takes you to get to 15 feet? I don't know. That sounds like an awfully mean grad student project.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other component of that too, uh, just around this rabbit hole out here, is that there's the impressive depth and then so they're going vertical and they're going horizontal most prairie roots right not all of them some of the forbs just go vertical but it's not just about how deep they can get it's also about what's colonizing the soil like how long does it take to build back your soil biology to get all of your microbes and all the tiny things that you can't even see functioning and working together that i think that takes maybe a much much longer time like maybe I
3: mean, Perfect podcast
0: topic for season three. Ah, oh, love it. Rabbit holes always lead to podcast topics. Worked down. <laughs> All right, back to burning. Sorry. Talk us. Talk. Talk us. Talk to us a little bit about the risks of burning, Joe.
1: So, you know, we're we're in the Great Plains, and the weather is not very consistent for very long. So, um, you know, we're talking prescribed burning. We're talking about setting out parameters when you can be the most successful and have the utmost safety along with that. So, you know, the, the bigger thing is what happens when an unforeseen natural system happens. You know, the wind changes or um, something goes wrong, equipment breaks. You know, th- those are the things that are really hard to plan for. You can prepare all day long um, for weeks. You know, we, we usually start prepping the fall before, but a wind shift for five minutes sometimes can't be predicted and sometimes that can make you have a a really bad day. Um, So you try to prevent those things by having a little bit more equipment. You know, you don't always just go with the bare minimum and having really good fire breaks. Um, it's my opinion that when it comes to prescribed fire, you know, 90% of the success with prescribed fire is put in before you even go and drop the match. Um, having a good burn plan, having really good solid fire breaks, And having staff and people to do it Um, you know landowners if you want to be really successful have good fire breaks and, and that really prevents bad things from happening and keeping the fire as we say in the box
0: i like that you mentioned having a backup plan and always planning for the worst like hoping for the best plan for the worst because it is all about safety i mean we can talk about how cool it looks to see a prairie on fire but really we want to make sure everybody's safe staff are trained and that you guys have contingency plans in place.
1: And on the landowner side, you know, you don't have to have shiny trucks and 15 people to show up to do prescribed fires um, on private lands. But you do need to have, you should have a burn plan, and you should have really good fire breaks, and you should have ways to get water from point A to point B. Um, You don't have to have the shiniest of contractions to do that, um, but you need to have something, um, whether it's, Ag tanks that you use in the summer for spraying noxious weeds or whatever um, that have been modified. How you get, how you do it, it depends on your situation, but you, ne- you need to have water to get from point A to point B.
0: And all the permits in place to protect yourself. That's the CYA portion of the podcast. Uh, Jess, you want to talk with Joe about goals? I would like to talk with Joe about goals.
3: We talked a little bit about... Uh, you know, knocking back cool season invasive species, but what might be some other site goals that you would have in um, occasions where you would use fire as a management tool?
1: So it seems like any more, um, you know, there's there's just more and more encroachment from the the green glacier, you know, eastern eastern cedars red or eastern red cedars, um, <laughs> particularly as you get along some of these river valleys and farther west in the South Dakota, um, but. They're popping up along shelter belts, and you know, people plant them. It's still in South Dakota. I don't know about Minnesota, it's still the number one planted tree in South Dakota. Um, when you're talking about cedar control, it really comes down to timing. Um, little small cedars are a little more susceptible to prescribed fire. As these cedar trees get a little bigger, it comes down to timing and putting a really hot fire on them. Um, and timing might be early. Earlier in the spring, when you can really send a ripping head fire, because what you're trying to do with cedars is get all the needles to fall off those trees. Um, If you leave a little bit of green on the trees, essentially they're going to come back and continue to be a pain in the butt. So if you're going to target cedars, you want to target it when you're going to get the most heat and the most pressure on them. And a lot of times when you're really trying to get after cedars, those are the days that Others may not want you to do prescribed fire because it's usually a little bit hotter, a little bit on the drier end of things. Um, things are a little more volatile. But when you're really trying to kill those, you know, mature cedars, that that's what it really takes to get after them.
0: So it takes a little bit more planning and prep to make sure you're still safe while you're doing it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yep. And, and fire, you know, and, and fire unit design comes into play. Um, you know, not putting fire breaks right next to the big patch of cedars. Um, <laughs> you know, buffer yourself uh, a couple hundred yards. So when those things start torching out and you get the really cool flames and smoke and all that, you don't have to worry about embers coming across your, your fire breaks and creating issues.
0: I read a paper last year that said, if you start, you know, without cedars and cedars are a native tree, we've mentioned this before. And so a lot of times we get the question like, well, if it's a native tree, why are you so focused on trying to get rid of it? And it's because cedar likes more of itself. And it doesn't play well in the prairie. I think we mentioned this on season one, too. It's just about maintaining that prairie vista. And we have so little prairie left. We're talking less than 2% remaining in Minnesota. And so I think another comment that we hear is, well, they're great deer habitat. Well, they are. But you know what else is great deer habitat? Prairie! So <laughs> you don't need cedar trees to have deer. I guarantee you, you will have deer if you have open prairie habitat. But so the paper was saying that if you start, you know, without any cedars in your prairie, that if you burn on a rotation of seven to eight years, you can keep, you can suppress them and keep them at bay. But sometimes that's hard to do.
1: Right. With the staff
0: and timing and...
1: Well, and, and yeah, I, I think that goes back to the historical regime. When you used to have big fires, it'd be really big and hot you get rid of a lot of those mature trees Um, you know in the current system we have it's harder to get fire on the ground and you know for for TNC we try to target I'm probably in the five-year range for getting fires done five to eight sometimes Um, it is really hard to stay on a three or four-year rotation because of all the factors you can't control and one of the factors that gets bigger and bigger in Southwest Minnesota and in my work area on the Prairie Coteau um, is you know, urban sprawl houses. People want to build their houses on these nice vistas or live next to a natural area. And that's great. Um, But then those same people also don't necessarily like to have smoke in the air. And we have to accommodate for that and highways and hog barns and all these different ag, ag things that are coming up are just more challenges to, you know, to make fire do a little bit harder because you are responsible for your smoke. So you have to take into consideration all those different factors and roads and people and um, it's tough and so, then you have to have good weather on top of all that
0: and you have to find the right balance so it's like you said there's nothing wrong with wanting to have who doesn't want to have their house next to a natural area I do can't afford it but I do like <laughs> I mean so but you have to still figure out how to find that right balance so that you're being a good neighbor
1: and when you build your house on the prairie next to the natural areas, expect the smoke.
0: <laughs> I'll you'll be the first one I call, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> like, please come help manage my prairie. So it sounds like the getting the appropriate return
3: interval on your on your fires is a challenge. Are there other hurdles that you face, Joe, when you are trying to manage all these lands with fire?
1: You know, really, it's the factor that nobody can control is the weather. You look mm-hmm. at last spring when we had blizzards and snow all the way in the mid to end of April, and then May came around and then it got to be like 90 degrees within three weeks of the snow going away. Um, mm-hmm. So when we have all these big fronts coming through, it can be tough to find our, our weather windows that keep us within prescription to even allow us to do the work. Um, so like I said, you know, not prescribed fire, that means you have a very defined set of parameters you're trying to stay within. And, you know, sometimes the weather the weather just doesn't cooperate when these big pressure fronts are moving through and winds are screaming out of the northwest for three days and then uh, screaming out of the south for a couple of days. And then you get some rain or whatever. So, um, yeah, th- those are the challenges. And, and we'll never be able to predict it. And that's why I really – I don't necessarily like to measure our success based on acres. Um I like to measure our success kind of based on units and our ecological objectives. Um, so if someone comes and says, you know, we did a thousand acres this spring or whatever, that's awesome. Um, but I, I might give the same value of awesomeness to someone that did four acres of really defined and ecologically objective, <laughs> a unit with ecological objectives and give that person just as high of a high five as I would somebody with a bunch of acres.
0: Because it's quality over quantity.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I like it. Um, so we talk a little bit about this. Uh, well, I talk a lot about this because I'm always thinking about how we can randomize what we burn. So there's you're talking about you have these goals, you have this number of sites, and you have different challenges on each site. Maybe one site, you've got cool season invasives, maybe another site, as you called it, the green glacier. I've never heard that term. I (laughs) I love it. I want (laughs) to coin it, a red cedar coming through. And so you're trying to manage all these different things at each site. But then there's also the very real, when you're thinking ecologically, this would have all happened randomly. So now we're in this prescribed system. So I think a lot about how can we, if we don't have um, let's say we get the prairie to a point where it's pretty good. You know, it's it's functioning pretty well. Uh, we've got our invasives at a tolerable level. You're never going to get rid of all of them, um, but you've got them at a tolerable level where your natives are dominant. You feel pretty good about the healthier prairie. We have good wildlife response going on. Then I talk to managers about how can we randomize this. So I really want to make a wheel of fire. I want a wheel of fire. And so this would be, I, I wish that it would be as big as like the price is right wheel so that when we spin it, you can like reach really tall and this would be like, boo, 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 boo. it would be so exciting. But so on the wheel of fire, you would, you'd have like your spreadsheet of which unit and then you'd spin the wheel and then it would give you your timing and your return interval. So it would say like, okay, you're going to do a spring burn, summer burn, fall burn. That's, that's one of your choices on the wheel. And then it would tell you like five years, three years, whatever, when you're coming back. And so then that would really help you randomize it. And I want it to be a wheel because it's more fun than a random number spreadsheet. (laughs) I want it to be a really big wheel. (laughs) Somebody could build me a wheel of fire. That would be the best thing ever.
1: (laughs) So I think, I think, you know, managers, um, managers that work for, you know, entities or agencies, whatever, um, kind of do some of that in, in their, in our heads. Um, when it comes to, you know, a landowner side of things with different farm bill programs and stuff that, you know, you lose some of that capacity. Um, so, so the randomness might not come from your timing because there's sets, but maybe from unit design, um, you know, a third, a half, a third, a half or a quarter each year type of stuff to keep it kind of mixed up. Um, you know, that's the other side of prescribed fire that gets challenging is when you go in and try to hit your objectives, you're. It's easy to burn a square every time. But when you go out into these, you know, natural systems, um, nothing's really square very easy, very often. So we're talking about doing prescribed fire, taking weird looking shapes and trying to divide that into quarters or thirds or sixths or whatever. Um and and that's a challenge too, just the to kinda you know, the unit design. And once you have all your shapes kinda figured out, then you can throw in your, your wheel of fire. Um and see what that <laughs> spits out at you
0: i love wheels of fire well and real quick because we gotta shift gears to chris here in a second tell me because you mentioned this earlier you said that quality is better than quantity so what to you is a quality burn because it used to be this idea of we gotta get it black jack but now that's we know that's not the case because there would have in natural fire, natural burn regime, there would be skips, there would be all these other things. So what is a quality burn to you? What does so, that mean?
1: So quality is one, it's you know, everybody's safe. Nothing breaks and it stays in the box. That's always the, the first few checkbox on it. Uh, you know check boxes for me. But then I also go back you know it goes back to those ecological objectives and we're designing our units, we're targeting certain things um and like you said the refugia is really important i think when i started doing fire almost 15 years ago it really was you walked around the drip torch and you made every square inch of that unit as black as could be um you know now we know better we're, we're trying to do more with less and provide more habitat with less available on the ground and if there's an area that doesn't get burned that's great it'll keep, you know we'll catch it next time um we gotta leave something left for all the little critters
0: I get the perfect segue
3: to talking about critters. So this is a really good thanks, Joe, for all that um, great info about managing with fire. Um, Chris, talk us through um, invertebrates and vertebrate response to fire.
2: Sure. Yeah. I think the most important place we you know we have to mention that not all invertebrates are created equal, and so we. Uh, given their biology and the way they use habitats, we anticipate that some species are going to respond favorably, uh, some species are going to respond negatively to fire, and then there are species that don't seem to really be impacted, and it has a lot to do with their just biology. So. You know, how many generations per year does the species have? You know, if it's multiple generations, they're uh, more likely to respond positively. If it's one generation or even less than a generation per season, uh, they're more likely to respond negatively. If you think back to your population biology classes that hopefully most of us have taken, um, it makes sense. They're going to be slower to bounce back after a disturbance like fire. Uh, Reproductive output is another one that, you know, if species are laying hundreds or thousands of eggs, they have a lot more potential to rebound, Uh, but we do have some species that are only laying, you know, a few eggs to maybe a couple dozen eggs, uh, and they tend to respond uh, negatively. Uh, Also, just, you know, where they're at during the burn season. Joe mentioned that a lot of our burns are occurring during the spring. Uh, We do some fall burning as well. If you have species that are migratory or are sheltering below ground during the burn season, uh, they're often uh, less likely to be impacted. Monarchs come to mind. You know, we all know monarchs migrate way, way down into Mexico and during our spring burn season, they're either not here or they're just kind of starting to show up. Uh, and so they're not usually uh, uh, impacted too much, but we have a lot of species that, that don't go away. They occur in our little prairies, uh, most of our prairies are pretty little these days, uh, year-round. And there are uh, some species overwinter above ground, uh, even pretty high up on the grasses. And so even if you wanted to uh, try to avoid impacting some of our rare uh, butterflies, for example. Uh, by doing a winter burn, which we don't see too often, but I've, I've heard it kind of recommended as a possibility, things like the power Sheik skipperling, which hopefully everybody listening to this podcast has at least heard of, the power Sheik skipperling is this critically endangered little butterfly, and it overwinters up high on grass. And so even a winter time burn would have catastrophic effects on the population if it occurred in a particular prairie. Uh, so and there are a lot more things to consider from a biology standpoint I will mention because I always get this uh, folks come up to me after I give a presentation and they're like well, well this paper says fire is good for butterflies or or this paper You know says it's bad for butterflies. What are we to believe? Um, but you really need to dig into the details because a lot of these publications that find positive fire effects the species that are being detected whether or not it's they're reporting it as species richness or relative abundance they tend to be the species that are kind of on the side of having a biology that lends itself to recover quickly and a lot of our really uh, specialist species uh, tend to to be honest they tend to not occur in these prairies where a lot of this research is taking place because they've been for whatever reason lost maybe they've been burned out and so if you don't have any of the really fire sensitive species in these study sites uh, you would expect to see positive or neutral results and so it can be a bit misleading and so you do really have to dig into the details
3: yeah, I asked you a question that I hate getting because it's it, people like to think of all invertebrates as the same, right? But just as you mentioned, many different species are doing vastly different things. They're at vastly different life stages overwintering or at any other time during the year. And so to, to ask the question... You know, how how does fire affect invertebrates? Well, that's kind of a lot of answers to that question.
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. And a group that's very rarely talked about, we actually have a lot of. Endemic land snails—they're specialist species. We don't even really know anything about them. Probably some of them are critically endangered, and we don't even know it. And they tend to respond very negatively after fire. And uh, so it really comes down to the specific property. If you know what you have, uh, then hopefully you design your management to uh, try to minimize impacts on those species. But yeah, there's just so much diversity out there, you know. Ranging from their dispersal ability, the amount of eggs that they produce, the number of generations, and so it's really tough to have a, a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, goal.
3: But there are some things we can do to try to mitigate the effects of fire on invertebrates, and you know, keeping in mind that fire helps the habitat that most of these insects depend upon. So it's a necessary part of the of the ecosystem. But there are some things we can do in this fragmented landscape to make sure we aren't doing more harm than good.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we already discussed refugia a little bit. These are leaving the unburned patches of habitat inside the burn unit. Um, They can be accidental. A lot of times they are accidental. But I would encourage folks to actually intentionally plan on uh, building in some of these unburned refugia, especially if you're working on a property where you know we have a rare species try to locate that unburned area uh, where those species have been observed in the past Um, you know having more you know small burn units can be really helpful and then just making sure because it's it's always tempting you have all your resources out on a prairie to burn as much as you can get done in that day it's it's always good to take a step back and remember what the objectives are and to kind of really burn as little as you you feel like you absolutely need to and then where possible uh, supplement uh, burning with other less destructive methods. So cedars came up earlier. They're one that's really easy to control with some mechanical removal going out with the chainsaw. It's a lot more work. I know from firsthand experience it's a lot less fun to control cedars <laughs> with the chainsaw, uh, but it, it will have a lot less impact on the prairie and as a whole. And so uh, maybe extending your fire rotation interval and in between doing some mechanical removal uh, is a good way to minimize those impacts.
3: So, what do you think about refugia? And you know, Joe, you can jump in here too with um, some logistical considerations. But what kind of what kind of percentages of a parcel are we talking about here? If we have, say, a 300-acre, um, you know, TNC preserve or WMA, what what's feasible and what's reasonable from an insect perspective to to leave?
2: yeah and so from my perspective it's really tough you almost need to look at it on a property by property basis Um, uh, you know on a 300 acre acre property you know personally based on some of the research I've read and some of the observations I've made I wouldn't burn more than a quarter of that probably you know every three years and so you're giving several years of rest where there's no burning happening on a property that size it's a relatively small property Um, if you're working on a really large property and there are folks out there that are fortunate enough to work on tens of thousands of acres if you have a really giant burn unit um, there's a lot of core habitat or core area inside that unit and some of our little butterflies and bees don't disperse very far and so if you want to retain them in that unit throughout that unit you're gonna have to have some pretty large refugia in in the interior of that unit otherwise they're never gonna have time they recolonize between burns. And so it really is, is going to
0: vary quite a bit. Well, even the ones, I just want to jump in here really quick, give a throwback to episode one, because mm-hmm. there's so many that don't even have wings, right? They're yeah. either an egg or like we learned in episode one from Kale at the zoo, he was talking about how Dakota skippers spend much of their life cycle as a chubby caterpillar. And so it would just it just breaks my heart to think that they could be burned up. Well, I know that it's, And in some cases it's part of maintaining habitat for them. If there's no prairie, you also don't have Dakota skippers. So it's this trade off, but they're just so chubby.
1: You know, Chris hit the nail on the head there too, that it's not all about a a ripping really hot fire too. You can burn on different days, Um, you know, cooler, maybe more humid days. So it's less intense. Um, You know, we do a lot of the prescribed fires. It's just not all we've got backfires and flank fires to kind of change up the intensity. So um you know your question on the refugia i'm probably right there with chris most of the time we're not burning more than 25 30 percent of any one site um like i said our rotations are usually a little longer than what we might desire but um i think the the word refugia it's more than just leaving stuff standing you know it's different intensities so there's different layers of thatch or maybe not everything gets burnt off as well
0: i know i think i think Oh, there's so many things that we could talk about, and I feel like we're just not even scratching the surface. But we have to jump into our next section. Jess, are you ready to do it? I'm ready. Let's, Let's science, science do the literature. literature! Okay, this is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper, or sometimes all three. And so our guests, feel free to jump in as we talk through some of these articles and literature that we're going to discuss today feel free to give us some of your insights about these as well jess take it away well i have a couple
3: things chosen today one is kind of a technical article we like to we like to include these here this one's pretty long um, but there's just one part of it that it's um focused on grasslands and the central region. The title is Ecological Effects of Prescribed Fire Season, a literature review and synthesis for managers. And it starts, and it's an 80 page um, document, but the central region starts on page 29. And they've got some really nice um, points about how it's hard to know what the historical fire regime was, but that it's, it's most likely these. Um, these lightning strike fires that we've talked about that are in the late summer that we we don't do quite as much um, for a variety of reasons, some of which Joe mentioned at the beginning. So but some of the key points that they include in this this, uh, literature review is the idea that changes in community composition can happen by altering the burn season. So you know, again, spinning that wheel and saying whether or not we're, we're doing a fall burn or a summer burn or a dormant winter season burn. Mixing it up is going to provide that thing we love best, diversity, and it's going to help all the wildlife um, by, by mixing it up a little bit. So burning to promote diversity by burning different during different seasons within that historic range of possibility will benefit the most species. And, you know, just as as Joe mentioned too, timing your burn to achieve site-specific goals, whether or not they're to avoid um, certain insects or other invertebrates or or what have you, um, is, is important to consider. The second paper I want to talk about came from Wisconsin. I don't know if you've read this paper, Chris, it's um, by Rich Henderson and others, dis-entangling, that was tough, effects of fire habitat and climate on an endangered prairie specialist butterfly. So again, as Chris mentioned, as always when we read these papers, we need to to take into consideration the scope of what they're talking about. So in this case, they're talking about my favorite butterfly, the regal fritillary. Chris knows it's my favorite. Megan knows it's my favorite. Okay. It's flashy and big. So the author used authors used 20-year data set In southwest Wisconsin, really close um, to here on seven different sites, and they surveyed yearly for 20 years for uh, regal fertility butterflies, and they measured habitat quality. So they measured, they went out and measured um, violet density, a floral ranking, some topography measurements, patch size. And really, the key results are much like what we've talked about today, that, um, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you do something. So that habitat quality was more important than fire. Um, so having violets there was more important than any kind of fire return interval. But but burning was better than not burning um, in in many of the cases. So to me, that means we gotta get violets into our plantings. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It. It's all, your plug for violet plugs. <laughs> it's my it's my plug for violet plugs. <laughs> yeah. And we're doing some really cool stuff to that end. So are a lot of other people. Um, so in in summary, the negative effects of the prescribed fire are are vastly outweighed by pot of positive effects of habitat, specifically making sure there's violets there. Unburned refugia are important, but small amounts of rotating burns um, burn units suffices in in this case, at least in Wisconsin with regal Fritillaries. they don't talk too much about the season of burn as generally, I think they were spring burns, you know, as usual. but
2: yeah, it's an interesting study. I, I think it's worth mentioning that regal Fritillaries, if you think about the continuum of being very sensitive and not very sensitive, they tend to be kind of middle of the road just because they're very good dispersers. Um, they they lay quite a lot of eggs, uh, and so. Another thing strong keep, flyers, strong, yeah, strong flyers, so something to keep in mind.
3: Yeah, and I think that some work um, by Kelsey McCullough in uh, Kansas actually showed she went out into um, burned prairies, and it's in Kansas, so again, you got to take that into consideration. Went out into burned prairies right after and was able to find larvae in the burn areas um, on uh, violets. So again, it's the timing of the burn and whether or not those violets themselves got burned. But so they're at larval stage, we should mention, during this uh, during this spring burning time. So maybe there's some way that they can drop down under a rock or something. I don't know.
0: If they're able yeah. to...
2: It's fascinating. Of, it and is. It's pretty rare to have a data set that, yeah. that's that long.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in kindergarten and they ask you what you want to be when you grow up, the person who looks for wriggle fritillary larvae after a burn was not on my checklist. So I would like to do over because <laughs> I just love science. There's so, this world, the prairies are so complicated and amazing, and you can do all of these really interesting things that are super weird but beneficial and awesome. I just had to throw that in there. Oh gosh. Jess, you want to mention the two? Um, as always, we like to do a shout-out to the Prairie Ecologist and Chris Helzer's blog with the Nature Conservancy, and it's only right since one of our guests today is with the Nature Conservancy. Do you want to talk about um, this difficult decisions, growing season fires, and other prairie management choices? No. <laughs> oh, you want me to talk about it? <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> so... Chris Elder talks about fire a lot because it's part of Managing Prairies. And so I just sort of randomly found this one. It's a, it's an older blog post. It's from 2013. And I just want to read the a paragraph from it because I think that it sort of gets at everything we're kind of talking about today and it'll be a, a nice little wrap, I hope. So these are his words. Right or wrong, I guess I've trained myself to focus on the long-term positive outcomes of our management and not to dwell on the short-term negative impacts. I'm not sure if that makes me insensitive or just sensible. One thing that helps me justify our actions to myself is that we're collecting as much data as we can about the overall impacts of our management. If we're going to make tough decisions that have negative consequences for other living creatures, I want to know that those decisions are leading to the long-term benefits we think they are. We can never collect enough data to know everything we want to, but we collect enough that I'm convinced most of our management strategies are working as planned, and we constantly tweak those strategies as we learn more.
3: Well, as always, you know, Chris does a great job of reminding us about the need to monitor. So we've touched on it a little bit here, but we haven't we haven't talked about it directly. If we if we want to know what invertebrates we need to protect, we got to know what's there, and we got to know how the fire affects them. So, if we want a 20-year data set like Wisconsin has, we got to get out there and doing some monitoring.
0: And that gets right back into what Chris Smith was saying. Our very own Chris Smith.
2: Can can I throw out a shameless plug for myself
0: here? (laughs) Absolutely. Now's the time.
2: Yeah, so I have my own blog, it's just fieldecology.com, and I have a presentation that I gave to the Minnesota chapter of the Wildlife Society on on insect biology and fire effects, and so I would encourage folks, if they haven't seen that, to, to check it out and uh, give it a look and hopefully you learn a little bit of something something new.
3: Yeah, we can so. link to it on our website, too. That'd be great. All right,
0: Megan? Yeah, Jess? Take a hike. I think I will! I love this part of our podcast because this is the part where we recommend some of your amazing public lands where you can go out and visit some awesome prairies. And I do mean awesome in the true sense of the word because prairies, just like the night sky, are awesome. So, because we have guests, like always, we want... This is always tough for them, we know it's hard, but we ask them to choose their favorite or at least their <laughs> pick for the week, whatever they were in the mood for, of where they want to go hiking. So Chris, what's your pick?
2: Yep, so I, I picked Uncas Dunes S and it's, it's a mix of prairie, oak savanna, and oak woodland. I know it's maybe not true prairie in the sense uh, of what you usually cover, but it's a really fascinating place, a lot of remnant habitat, it's sand, sand prairie. So lots of cool, rare plants and animals, um, just a really unique property that fortunately DNR acquired to protect and lots of great work happening there to maintain and enhance that habitat. And so it's a, it's a wonderful day to be out there hiking through the hilly terrain. So it's
3: in Sherburne County. In
2: right? Sherburne County, up in central Minnesota, I don't know, probably 20, 30 minutes east of St. Cloud. Nice.
0: The transition zone. Yep. It's sounds beautiful. I like when there's lots of different types of habitat in one place. Because prairie landscape, it has all kinds of things in it, not just prairie. It has calcareous fens, sedge meadows, all of these things.
2: Yeah, and it's a well, property we've worked closely with, DNR, to make sure our burn plans adequately address uh, rare insect conservation. So,
0: nice. Joe?
1: Yeah, so I guess I'm going to cheat and go with two. Um, since I crossed the border and work in South Dakota and Minnesota, I'm also going to be shameless. Um You know, a kind of hidden gem in southwest Minnesota down in Jackson County is Linden Traeger Bird Sanctuary. It's a TNC-owned site um, on the shores of North Heron Lake. And that's one of the few spots, actually, it's the only spot on the lake where you can actually look out on the lake and see the migratory birds. Um, In dry years, the mud flats are full of shorebirds. I'm personally not a birder, so I couldn't tell you what the birds are, I just know there's a lot of them. Um, There's a few more swans starting to, to nest in that area. There's some other great habitat projects. You know, in that vicinity, as long as some waterfall production areas and game or game management areas. Um, but then on the South Dakota side, when we're talking some unique spots like calcareous fens, just across the border, about 10 miles or so, uh, TNC has a series of sites: Seven Mile Fen, Jacobson Fen. Um, they have multiple calcareous fens. It could be a really cool place to get out and explore towards the end of August, early September. So, those are, those are my two plugs, one for each date.
0: Good job, I like it. And for those of you who don't know what a calcareous fen is, they're prairie wetlands, super rare, fed by groundwater. They have peat in them, and they have so much calcium that they basically sweat calcium, which looks like this white crust over all the plants, and they have this unique group of plants that grow there, and some of them only grow there. They're pretty treacherous to walk through, so take a buddy, because you can definitely (laughs) fall through the peat, but they they are very rare. They formed after the glaciers receded, and they're pretty amazing. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. That's our last take a hike for the season. I need a backpack and some snacks and my my belt, my seed belt, Jess, and you and I just need to go spend some quality time out on the prairie because I don't only, want it to be over.
3: Only fitting that Joe would leave us with, once again, not following the rules. There's
0: better way to end a season than that. Megan says she's
1: getting a map, so she'll find South Dakota. <laughs>
0: it's hard for me I, I try not to leave minnesota oh chris joe thank you so much for your expertise and your time we really appreciate it um all good things must come to an end so this is the wrap for our final episode of season two of the Pray pod we really hope you've enjoyed it we've enjoyed it i learn stuff every time jess you learning still you still learning? Oh, of course always <laughs> i know oh there's always so much to learn so we hope that, as you know, it doesn't end here. The Us talking at you ends here, but the time on the prairie doesn't end. So as the blue stem turns purple and the Indian grass gets golden, we look forward to seeing you out there on your public land holdings or just on the prairie somewhere. So get out there and explore and let us know what wonderful things you're seeing on the land. As always, you can catch all of the resources we talked about today, including the let Science and the Take-A-Hikes, on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod (laughs) all right till next year bye y'all see ya check you later
1: see ya